Welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. I'm Victoria. And we're up to the final section of C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, which is entitled... Book 4, Beyond Personality, or First Steps in the Doctrine of the Trinity. So it starts off with Chapter 1, Making and Begetting, and it starts off with the whole notion of a religion of uh, nice feelings, which is very appealing for many reasons. But C.S. Lewis starts off with a, an experience he had with someone who got up in the middle of one of his lectures on some form of theology and says, you know, what you're saying is all well and good, but um, it's absolute poppycock next to something that I experienced in the desert. Um, you know, I felt God, I, you know, and, you know, all your doctrines are nothing. They're sand compared to this. And he says, well, that's all well and good, you know, and I'm sure a real experience of God is necessary. Theology is a practical application to anyone's spiritual and religious life. And he has this excellent uh, quote, which, if you'll allow me, I will read because I think it's the best way of going about it. But he says, you see what happened to the man in the desert may have been real and was certainly exciting, but nothing comes of it. It leads nowhere. There is nothing to do about it. In fact, that is just why a vague religion, all about feeling God in nature and so on, is so attractive. It is all thrills and no work, like watching the waves on the beach. But you will not get to Newfoundland by studying the Atlantic that way, and you will not get eternal life by simply feeling the presence of God in flowers or music. Neither will you get anywhere by looking at maps without going to sea, nor will you be very safe if you go out to sea without a map. And so this carries on from an analogy he made before where theology was a map tested by many people beforehand um, as a guide through your religious life, I suppose. And ultimately, the whole point of it is to emphasise that theology is not some heady cerebral, you know, cerebral exercise for academics to do, sitting around doing nothing but reading and arguing all day. It's for everyone. So C.S. Lewis is really trying to... Um, emphasize that theology is not just the realm of the academics, it's the realm of the ordinary and the everyday. And in fact, everyday people must engage in theology to whatever, you know, in whatever way that, in whatever way they can. And it's important to point out that it's not always going to be old men in dusty libraries reading the Summa. Um, It's, it could be children in Sunday school getting basic catechesis, you know, it's, Theology is important, no matter how it's distributed or in um, what what level it is. Everyone needs some form of it at one point or another. Otherwise, it's uninformed good feelings. I think what's really important in what C.S. Lewis is bringing out here is this notion that you need both the map and the actual voyage. You can't just sit there looking at maps all your life and say that you've crossed the ocean when you haven't. Yet at the same time, you can't simply cross the ocean without having the map. You need that experience of all the people who've been before you that have charted uh, the lands and the seas um, for all their collective experience in order that you may have the best uh, voyage, if you will, across the ocean. And in the same way, um, you can't simply have just theology on its own uh, because then it simply becomes an academic exercise. But at the same time, if all you have, as you said, Victoria, is the nice feelings, then it could simply just go nowhere. It just becomes about, uh, I guess, a pleasurable experience on my part. 
And yeah, I think that's something that's yeah quite attractive today uh, because we do like to think. I think I've mentioned this in a previous episode, but we do like to think of religion as being a bit like, or at least supernatural experience or the experience of God or spirituality, as being like a supermarket. You know, I go in and I pick. I want this bit and this bit and this bit. And I go to the register and that's my religion. Um, Sisyphus <laughs> goes over this so many times, but that's not what it's about. What it's about is it's meant to be that relationship with Christ that's not simply about Christ giving me nice feelings or doing nice things for me and I feel kind of okay about it, but it's meant to be about following Christ. And following Christ involves your whole person, uh, which is something he really talks about later on, which we might go into. But for now, uh, he goes into is the next thing, this notion of the Trinity. Why is it a Trinity? Why are we not monotheists? Like strict uh, monotheists. Strict monotheists. We are monotheists, but strict monotheists. <laughs> Thanks, Kiara, saving me from heresy. Um, like the Jews and the Muslims, for example. And something that's so different about Christianity that he points out here is that God is love. Um, we know that, that the Trinity uh, is God, uh, not only because of Scripture and because what Christ has told us about the Father and about the the helper that he sends us, that is the Holy Spirit, but we can also deduce it from what Christ says about the nature of God in terms of him being love. Um, it's interesting just to point out, just before you go into the whole big thing of the Trinity, that he says that when most people say, oh, God is love, they're really meaning love is God. And it kind of harkens back to this whole um, obsession our society has now with almost revering um, these good feelings, these romantic feelings almost. So continue. Yeah, yeah. I guess just talking about what you're saying there, this this kind of notion that, oh, well, if I feel love, if I feel a vague sort of attraction towards something, it must be from God. I don't think you necessarily get that so much today, at least amongst our generation, might be among older generations, I'm not sure. But in our generation today, I think that the appeal towards loving feelings being good does not necessarily involve them appealing to God. And that's probably um, a comment on the secular nature of our society today. But going back to the Trinity itself, it's really interesting how he points this out because he speaks on how love is a communal thing. It's a social uh, a social aspect. And so you require at least two actors uh, to have love, I guess, uh, in its fullest and most proper form. And so with the notion of the Trinity, it's the idea that uh, the father is the lover, uh, the son is the beloved, and that love that's the interaction between them is the Holy Spirit. And I think to me that this is amazing because One, to me, it makes a lot of sense for reasons that C.S. Lewis points out that, yes, God loves us, um, but we can't say that God is love because he loves us on its own, Um, because there was a time when we didn't exist, uh, when the universe didn't exist. There's a, I guess time is probably not quite the right word to use it, but there is a... There is no other word to use, unfortunately, in our limited human, you know, thought process here. This is... um, this is wibbly, that was an wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. Yeah, let's go with that. Instance. There's <laughs> an instance. <laughs> but that because God is eternal and that God is love with or without us, there is a communal aspect to God, and that is what the Trinity is. And this just blows my mind because I think 
you know, I'd, I'd known, you know, the idea that God is love and that, that God is a trinity and that before. And really what kind of brought that out for me um, was reading a completely different book, uh, was Introduction to Christianity by uh, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger, mm-hmm. who's now Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. And the way that he has just he was just able in that book to show that at the bottom of everything, at the bottom of our existence, at the bottom of the nature of God, when you take away all the words that we can possibly use to describe God, at the end of the day, the one thing is love. That's why we were created. That's why all the interactions that we have in humanity have this notion of love. That's what God is. It's the most basic... I can't think of the word to say. It's the most basic element of everything. Um, And it's hard to probably try and convey that through uh, a podcast, but it's just something that when you realize as a Christian uh, that that's what it's all about, um, it's, you can't, you can't go back from that. It's something that just completely blows your mind and makes you realize, you know, how amazing our existence and how amazing God is. Um, so I highly recommend that if you are reading me Christianity, that you read that bit because it is very important. And I mean, essentially, this is like the heart of the onion, if you will, that is Christianity. I'm going to use that because there are so many layers and C.S. Lewis has been very, very carefully peeling it all away until we get to the very core, which is the Trinity. And the Trinity is God as love, the lover, the beloved, and the nexus of the love. And that is... Again, like Luke said, when you actually when you actually stop and contemplate this and what this then means for you as a Christian, it'll totally change the way you see the world. It'll, you know, all of a sudden you get these, you know, these scales fall off your eyes and you see things how, you know, as how they should be. And in many ways it's a moment of great joy, but it's also a moment of oh my god, what am I doing with myself? I'm such an idiot. I'm a terrible person in all the times that I've failed to love. And and in some ways he just kind of drops it on you and then he just keeps going with into the chapter which is what obstinate toy soldiers which i think is such an incredible title for a chapter just saying that because he does emphasize that as men we are not truly fulfilled to unless we are in god if that makes sense you know um you know he kind of drawing on St. Augustine saying, you know, my heart is restless until I rest in you. And so C.S. Lewis knows this. And at the, you know, the core of every human is a God-shaped hole that just can only be, and a desire that can only be satisfied by God. And it goes into that more in the Four Loves Mm. um, book, which we may do at some point in this series. Um, So he then goes into obstinate toy soldiers and saying, you know, we, you know, we are only complete when we are in God. But how do we get there? So just going back on that a little bit, um, just before we jump into that, he talks about um, this notion of, he calls it a dance um, within the Trinity, which is very, which I love that little uh, analogy because it is the the love that is within God, the love that is the Trinity itself is like a dance. And something that he kind of goes into here, um, into this section, the obs the obstinate toy soldiers, is this notion that that dance is not something that God simply does by himself, within himself, between himself for all eternity. He could. Uh, There's nothing stopping him because he's God and it doesn't matter if we exist or not. It's not going to change him. 
but we've been created to participate in that dance. And I think that's really the crux of where he's trying to get to from here on out in the book. Yeah. And Catholics have a word for it. It's a really cool word. It's called perichoresis. Perichoresis. <laughs> Love the Greek there. And, um, you know, and it literally means, it, it doesn't quite mean dance, but it means to revolve around or to be in motion around something. And so if you kind of think about, you can kind of just kind of imagine this eternal cosmic dance between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit just fueling and being the essence of all existence. And, you know, they... and they made us to participate in that. Like, how cool is that? Like, seriously, why would you not want to be a Christian? No offense to anyone else out there, but (laughs) how awesome is that? So, yeah, with this, what does he mean by toy soldiers? Um, What he says is that he tries to use this analogy. I've noticed C.S. Lewis likes analogies. It's only taken four episodes. (laughs) I finally figured that out. uses this analogy uh, that... We as humans are a little bit like toy soldiers being made of tin. Now, wouldn't it be cool, like any child thinks, or most children, think uh, if the toy soldiers could come to life, like Toy Story, uh, 60 years after this book was written, (laughs) and that they could come to life, that they could have flesh, like Pinocchio or something like that. And what he then says is that, well, that's actually what it's like for us, that in our current state, in our fallen state within humanity, we are like those toy soldiers. We are missing something. We're missing an element of our existence, an element of our lives that would not simply make us advance in our toy soldieriness, but would bring us into a new stage of life. Um, It would give us flesh, if you will. Um, And that is really the analogy that he's trying to push here of what uh, God has done in redeeming us, that after our fall, we became toy soldiers and that Christ came and was crucified, uh, not simply as a message uh, or a collection of good deeds. um, An excellent moral teacher. Yeah, an excellent moral teacher. But he's called us with Christianity uh, to become like the toy soldiers that have become flesh, to participate in the divine. Uh, And the way that we do that is we participate through the one who took on a toy soldieriness, but was at the same time having flesh, uh, to try and stretch that analogy as far as I can. And that is Christ, uh, because he became man uh, so that we may participate in that divine nature because we lost all potential and possibility of of participating in that divine nature through the fall and it was only through him uh that we can that we can bring it back and again this is something that goes beyond it's not as though you know the 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 fleshy man becomes the toy soldier to give them a series of instructions on how they can shed their tin and become flesh but they actually have to become part of him in order to have that that fleshy life, um, I think I've and it also, much milked that analogy for everything. Yeah, but it's, it's also got to be a choice of free will. God didn't do this to kind of make all the tin soldiers have flesh. It's, you know, some people might be very comfortable with their tin soldieriness, thank you very much, and don't want, you know, any part of this newfangled <laughs> fleshiness that, you know, which is, which is what I love because C.S. Lewis doesn't shy away from the fleshiness of the Christian religion. People who want to, you know, deflesh the incarnation is just... You know, uh, do, you know, doing something so profoundly wrong there, but and 
he then goes, you know, but he then goes in saying, you know, they're, well, okay, fair enough. So he wants, so God wants fleshy sons of God, not tin soldiers. So why didn't he just make them in the first place? Mm-hmm. And C.S. Lewis says, well, actually, in order for, you know, you don't, you know, God could have done that. It is within his power to do that. But that would have made us automatons to use that kind of very old fashioned word. That wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been a free, there would, there would not be no room for free will. He also says that with this notion that why didn't uh, God create multiple sons of God, uh, if you will, that that would actually have been kind of impossible. Um, it would have been impossible, in a sense, for, for there to be multiple uh, sons of God. And he uses, again, an interesting analogy um, concerning pennies. Yeah, he talks about how we've got the one son of God, which is Jesus, but if he'd just made us all sons of God... We wouldn't have been able to distinguish ourselves because in order to have many of the one thing, it just blows my mind how he talks about this, you need space and time. So he says it's like having two pennies. They're the same. However, there are two of them and you can distinguish them based on the different um, area of space and time they um, in, like you know take up together. Um, but if you, we're in eternity without space or time, prefiguring space and time, there wouldn't be any differentness or whatever. So he basically says that you need creation in order to have multiple sons of God, yeah, really. Yeah, basically, if we were all um, perfect sons of God, we would all be Christ. And if we were all Christ, there would it would simply just be one Christ. So there would be no difference. It wouldn't simply be that we'd all be clones of each other. We'd actually be the one thing because he's infinite. Uh, mm. He's eternal. Um, and so you can't say things like you can't multiply the infinite and the internal by two or three or four or seven billion um, as it is today. Uh, creation is a requirement there that it must be something that exists both uh, within God in the sense that there's nothing more than God. So it's not as though you've got creation plus God. Uh, but at the same time, creation has its own sovereignty. Um, and it's within that sovereignty that we, as sovereign beings, are able to exist. And, you know, and exist and have free will and have the ability to choose a life in God or to not choose a life in God. You know, we are not automatons, to use C.S. Lewis's the slightly old-fashioned word. We're not robots. We have a choice. And, you know, Christianity is not a religion of imposing. It's only a religion of proposing. Yeah, and that in the end, uh, what through Christ we are meant to become um, is what he describes as a new man. Um, And it's through that uh, he uses this kind of idea of evolution um, to be able to to convey this notion that when Christ came to make us the the fleshy tin soldiers, no longer tin soldiers. Did you say flesh eating? Fleshy. Oh, good. (laughs) I thought you said flesh-eating tin tin soldiers. (laughs) Okay, then. (laughs) And The Walking Dead now has a C.S. Lewis spin. (laughs) Fleshy tin soldiers. So in this notion of becoming a new man, uh, he wants us to become perfect. Now, of course, it would be... uh, It's impossible for us to become perfect, but through Christ, uh, through the God who, who took on a human nature... Um, we are able to to become like God. Now, unfortunately, this is not a simple process. 
Um, this is not a process that's easy, especially because of our fallen nature. And I really love what he talks about here. Another analogy in talking about what this process is like. And he says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. Now, at first, perhaps you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you were not surprised. But presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. Now, I love that analogy because it shows that A... What we're created for is to become a palace. We're created to be something much bigger than what we within ourselves, just on our basic knowledge and our ability to reason, we think that we're just meant to be nice people. Uh, Just nice, decent, well-achieving people. But God wants so much more from us than that. He wants us to take it up a notch. Secondly, taking it up a notch means that he wants to dwell within us. He wants us to become like Christ, not simply so that we can become like clones of Christ, but so that Christ can live within us. And thirdly, this process is painful. It's like and knocking out walls. And yeah, exactly. And frightening. And something and we resist. It, it's something we resist because in our brokenness and our pride and in our fear, we can't let go of the things that, you know, those little things that we like. Like, he you know, he has another analogy and he says it's sort of like the good man who pays his taxes in that he pays the right amount, but he s- hopes that there's some left over for him to live on. So we say, okay, God, take away, you know, some of our bad, like our faults, our sins, but just stop there because we're good enough there. You know, we're quite complacent in our, you know, fair enough. That That's... Good and I enough, like how sort he of thing. Kind of brings out this idea that we like to think that it's a bit like arbitrary things in our behaviour are good, <laughs> and arbitrary things in our behaviour are bad. And we just take out arbitrary things, and we're left with the good things, like that we don't really recognise within ourselves what's good and bad. And as soon as we take out those arbitrary actions that are very bad, oh well, that's it, done. I can keep on rocking with my life. You know, yeah. I can keep on continuing as I were. And it misses the great point that, you know, Christ, like with the house, is going to make a new person of us. He's going to take all of us, our faults and all, our good points and all, and just create this this new man that I think C.S. Lewis basically ends the whole book with, this whole concept of the, the new man. And so in the end, what he says is that the command that Christ has for us, which is be ye perfect, uh, to quote him, is not idealistic gas, um, but it's not impossible either. It's something that, as he keeps going back to again and again, is that just because it seems impossible doesn't mean it is impossible. But that doesn't mean we can do it by our own strength. It's something we can only do through God. Um, And that is to become perfect sons of God, to become perfect sons like Christ. We are not Christ, but through Christ, we can become perfect the way that our Heavenly Father wants us to be perfect. And the way that, well, not just wants us, but intends us to be, and the way we are meant to be. And that's what he kind of goes back to in the chap- the, in the final chapter, The New Men, in that the perfection that God intends for us 
is you know is is where is the whole point of christianity is where we are going and it takes and it's a journey that takes consumes our entire lifetime and often sometimes of the afterlife as well which is really hilarious that yeah, he points out he says and after death which is basically c.s lewis saying that there al- is a purgatory and it's also very controversial particularly it's, it's also very very controversial particularly in the protestant world and he himself was a protestant now he's in good company with other Protestant thinkers at the time who were actually seriously considering purgatory. But um, it is still a very, very controversial teaching. It is. is. Um, Even within the Catholic world, too, these days, since there is quite a lot of ignorance about the subject and the Mm -hmm. nature of purgatory. Um, Because it's not a place, it's a state. So in the end, that's what C.S. Lewis's mere Christianity is about, that that's what Christianity is. Christianity is about a death to our personal selves. It's about a death to our to our simple wants and desires, and it's a death to um, who we thought we wanted to be, uh, or who we think is best for us, or what we think is best for us. But it, it's about dying to ourselves so that we can become Christ, um, not literally, <laughs> of course, but to become uh, one with Him uh, in heaven. And that's really where we get the idea of baptism from, uh, entering into the waters, uh, entering into that death so that we can emerge as sons of God. Uh, The Eucharist, you know, the most intimate interaction between uh, ourselves and Christ himself. This is really what Christianity is about. It's not about moral teachings. Uh, It's not about theology. It's not about written words. All of those things are a part of Christianity. But at the end of the day, and this is what C.S. Lewis wants to try and get across with the mere Christianity, hence mere Christianity, is this idea that Christianity is about becoming one with Christ. It's a hard process. It's a process that we don't want to go through, but it's what we were made for. And that's the end of the book. Um, We got there. Yeah, eight weeks, four episodes, um, many a time in the office trying to finish the <laughs> chapters because we couldn't quite finish them before the episode, but we got there in the end. It happened. We did it. And honestly, what we, we've only just touched on the richness of this book, so we actually highly recommend you go and track down a copy and read it yourself. It's not a difficult read necessarily, but it does give you a lot to chew on. And, and it's all- it is totally worth it. And it's an also like a fantastic communal read. If you're going to read it, I really suggest reading it along with a friend and then kind of getting back to them on certain sections because people will think different things to you or they'll pick up on different interesting parts or whatever it is. So pick it up with a friend. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's a good stepping stone um, into more advanced theological works. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good, lays some good foundations. I mean, it's probably, you know, being uh, being a, for want of a better term, Protestant text. Um, what, it's would, a, what would you suggest Christ- is the next step for this after you read that? <laughs> Go on. I don't know. What what would be the next? I guess. Um, um, I think you from you know if you were to take if you were to take Lewis as your starting point, you could pick up almost you know almost any other introduction to Christianity. Maybe you look at Ratzinger. And mm, go introduction idea. to Christianity to get a slightly more Catholic-oriented perspective if that's what you're after, or you know you go pick up things like Augustine's Confessions if you're really up for a ch- if you're up for a challenge. Like 
that's a great I've been reading that myself and I've found it incredible incredibly awesome mm, you can mm. pick up you can pick up loads of different things because he really gives an excellent foundation that is very inter yeah. that is really interdenominational any Christian will pick this that will pick this up and not be offended by it <laughs> I think uh, except according to us the Calvinists <laughs> uh, yeah well <laughs> but yeah I think it's a really good foundational point uh, a good stepping stone and I think um a good bridge uh between and between refresher especially for us i mean like you know we've been in the faith for a few years at least and i just thought oh mere christianity i've got this and i was reading this and learning so many new things so yeah, you're yeah. never too far along in your faith journey to read me christianity yeah so it's a fantastic read pick it up uh and we'll be back in two weeks uh with another book and i'm just going to go out there right now um we're committed to it now yeah we're, we're there animal farm it's going to happen. It's going to happen. This is happening. Yeah. Two weeks, Animal Farm, the whole thing. We're not going to cut it up into uh, into individual episodes because that would be a bit silly. Yeah. Um, so join us again in two weeks as we read Animal, Animal Farm. Farm. Animal Farm. By it George Orwell. George Orwell's Animal Farm. I'll finally find out what the term Orwellian means. I'll probably learn a little bit more about pigs than I wanted to. <laughs> but hey, it's going to be fun. Uh, so thank you very much for joining us after this fourth week, uh, for sticking around with us after all this time, and we hope to we hope to see you. We're not going to see you. You're on the other side of the internet. Well, we hope that you listen to us next time. So thank you. Thanks, Kiara. Thank you, everybody. And thank you, Victoria. It was a pleasure. Thanks. And we'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au. 